Welcome to episode 105 of Enhancing the Human Experience podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Joshua Pollock. Joshua is the co-author of The Heartfulness Way, Heart-Based Meditations for Spiritual Transformation. And in this episode, we talk about what the Heartfulness Way is and how this practice can help you have better experiences in your day-to-day life. Because at the end of the day, that's what we all want, right? We want to have better relationships. We want to have a better experience at work. We just want to have feel better about our lives, improve our state of being and effectiveness in the world, to calm the mind, those kind of things. So we talk about all of that and more in this episode of the podcast. And we also share resources with you about how you can find out more about the Heartfulness Way and find local practitioners in your area and even learn this practice yourself. I was Um, somewhat shocked to find that the practice is free to learn. There's no cost to learn this practice. And uh, you can go to some of these resources and learn more about that. You can also find more information on my website, gmarkphillips.com. I'll put all the resources we mentioned in this episode of the podcast. So you can go and learn more about the Heartfulness Way meditations. Before we get into the episode, I just want to share a really special experience that I recently had with you, and that experience took place at the Peace Room. If you're in the Boise area, I highly recommend you get in touch with Jenny Stinson. She runs the Peace Room. Jenny is a Reiki master and certified crystal healer, and I had a session there with her. It was thoroughly relaxing, thoroughly enjoyable, and I came away feeling more open, more positive about my life, just a general state of well-being, almost kind of a little bit like high vibrational type type of state of being. You probably kind of can relate to what I'm telling you here. Um, but again, I can't say enough about the Peace Room in, uh, in Boise here. If you're in the area, definitely get in touch with Jenny Stinson. The website is thepeaceroom.love. That's T-H-E P-E-A-C-E-R-O-O-M dot L-O-V-E. She's got a great quote on her website here I just want to share with you before we get into the interview. And it's by Wayne Dyer. And she says, quoting him, by changing your inner thoughts to the higher frequencies of love, harmony, kindness, peace, and joy, you'll attract more of the same. And you'll have those higher energies to give away. I think that's awesome. So big shout out to Jenny Stinson at the Peace Room. If you're in the Boise area, definitely get in touch with her and get a Reiki session and crystal healing session. Okay, so let's get into this episode of the podcast and and jump into the interview. Before we do that, let me just give you a little bit of background on who Joshua Pollock is and the Heartfulness Way. So Joshua is himself a Heartfulness trainer and practitioner. He's from the United States. He currently lives in India. His background is somewhat different than than meditation. His background is in classical violin. He practiced since the age of four, and he has so he has a deep musical musical background in in that sense. He was always enthusiastic about spirituality and uh meditation and kind of, I guess, described himself as a little bit of a seeker of those things. That's ultimately kind of what brought him to the Heartfulness Way meditation. And we talk about that in the interview. He shares his story about how he found the Heartfulness Way. 
He holds a bachelor's of music arts degree from Indiana University and two master's degrees from Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. And like I said, he currently resides in India with his wife and their two children. So I hope you enjoy this interview. I certainly did. And again, I'll share resources with you on my website, gmarkphillips.com, and also at the end of this interview. So let's get into the interview. Joshua, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. I'm very happy to be here with you. I appreciate it. I know you've got a busy day here in Boise. Yeah. Carving out a little time means a lot to me. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, I guess for starters, what do you say when, when someone asks you what the heartfulness way is? The heartfulness way, it's a way of living where we're constantly referring back to the heart, you know, and we are able to do that because of a few very simple practices that, that we use on a daily basis. Now, what does it mean when we're referring to the heart? It means a few things. First of all, I think we can understand that. You know, it's easy to sort of get lost in the swirl of life to a certain extent, you know? And to remember what is truly meaningful, what your true values are. The heart knows all these things, but we sometimes forget. So the more we're able to actually connect with the heart, the more we remember, the more we're able to, you know, the more the heart will tell us, do, do this, don't do this. It'll send us messages. We'll be able to discriminate what's good for me, what's not good for me, what's good for others, what isn't. And we end up finding some guidance emerging from within. For that, we need to connect to the heart. And we do that mostly through meditation, even in some of these old things like, um, you know, of course, heartfulness is something which is, it's not based in any religion, right? Anybody from any background, any tradition can certainly practice it. But um, just to make a point, I'm going to refer to Bhagavad Gita, right? It's one of these universally respected texts. And there, in, there's a chapter about meditation where Krishna says to Arjun, he says that I am in the heart of all created things. He says I, he means this essential thing, this divinity, you could say. It's in the heart of all things. So by meditating uh, on the heart, you now come into contact with a very essential part of your being. And you're able to receive the sort of impulses that come from that. And then we end up finding that there's some guidance which we can follow, which will guide us better than anything else. It's not to say we don't use our intellect in our lives. We do certainly use our intellect. But sometimes it becomes a situation where your intuition tells you something. And then if you want confirmation about it, you can use an intellectual process and see, yes, is this good? You reverse engineer the intuition with your intellect and get confirmation so that you can go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Well, I like that. So, so you kind of look to the heart first for the for the supreme guidance, and then the intellect fills in. Yeah, you, intellect, not to justify it, but to understand it. You know, to say, is this valid? You can use your, you can think, you know, and think clearly. We, it's very important to think very, very clearly. That's also what meditation allows us to do. You know, gives us a certain discrimination. You know an ability to be able to understand the difference between the cause and effect, to understand between yes and no, you know? Yeah. And yeah. see the nuance of things rather than, you know, just ideologies or beliefs or things that often, you know, we succumb to. Well, and I'm, I'm glad you bring that up. I, in the book, I noticed that um, one of the things that you, they say that meditation helps you become, helps you create a naturalness. Can oh, yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, you know, I think 
before, see, the first thing is that when we look at you know, nature, or even the animal kingdom, right? We don't see that animals or even trees or elements of nature, we don't see um, that there is a conscious, so much of a conscious decision to do something or not to do something. Rain falls because it falls. It doesn't, the cloud doesn't say, let me rain. You know, animals are very instinctual, right? But when it comes to human beings, we seem to have this extra level where, you know, some self-awareness and free will come into the picture where I say, let me decide to do this or not to do this. And then this decision, this question comes, should I or should I not? You know, so then we all of a sudden get into fixes and we wonder, what should I do with my life? You know, and that's something that perhaps is unique about being a human being, this free will. Now, we don't obviously prescribe meditation for animals, right? There's no need to be. They're natural as they are. But for us, it seems that with this addition of free will, you know, with this quality, now in order to continue to, you know, let me use the word evolve, there needs to be some conscious agreement that, yes, I should do this, you know, let me evolve. So with that free will, with that, you know, aspect of our consciousness, we have to decide to do something now, you know? And so then we can take some practice, like we can meditate or we can do something. But ideally, we should again move into a place where it becomes very, very natural. Again, where this thought process becomes so automatic that we don't need to get caught up in wondering about should I or should I not. You see, so I think at the lower levels, you find that there's animals with their instinct, right? Human beings also have instinct. But for us, in a society like ours, instinct gets in the way and causes a lot of problems, you know? So we're trying to actually get to a naturalness which is not the naturalness of instinct, but a naturalness which is something above, maybe the naturalness of intuition and something beyond intuition even. You see, so at the lower level, you have instinct. Then in the mid-level, which we're all familiar with, we're using our intellect all day long, deciding things, understanding things, trying to. And then above that, there's an intuitive level, which we can follow that also just as easily as a person can follow their instincts. Mm-hmm. But, this in, but it's a higher sort of, it's a, it's a higher faculty, I'd say, because it won't lead us into a murderous rage, for instinct. Right. It's the way an instinct might, right? right? And, then, and then beyond that, I think there is the question of receiving guidance and saying, yes, I'll follow it, becomes a moot point. Because now this naturalness kicks in where automatically you do exactly what you should be doing. You know? That's what I like. Yeah. I like yeah. So, so the whole thing goes from this, at the very bottom, activity is automatic. You know, I don't know if a, maybe, I don't know if a slug is how hard they're thinking about what they're doing. You know, right. so at the bottom level, it's <clears throat> automatic. At the highest levels, it's also automatic. But in a different way. Yeah. Well, and that's what, you know, pe- people, um, I think a lot of people want to know what meditation really can give them. Uh, and so when you talk about that being a naturalness, and I love that fact that you're operating at a higher level of like awareness and, and ability is really, that, that's, that's enticing to people, I think. Right. Well, I mean, it should be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, um, how can heartfulness help us in our daily lives? I mean, in too many ways. I think no matter, I see a lot of our challenges that we face are external challenges. Those kind of challenges will never go away, right? Does it going to come and cure every disease or cure every problem? Of course not. That's not its purpose either. 
you know, but a lot of our problems that we have externally, we somehow magnify with our approach to them. We try to deal with them and in some way we make them worse, mm-hmm. you know, or this focus on something negative, some problem, somehow expands the effect that it has upon us, you know? Like if you stub your toe, like obviously it hurts. It doesn't matter who you are, if you're an enlightened being or not, right? But then what do you, if the, the extent to which you now start going deeper into that sensation and focusing on it can create, you know, suffering out of mere pain, right? So this is an aspect of what we tend to do anyway. So I think that um, one of the things that meditation can do, which heartfulness helps us with, is to not make a mountain out of a molehill. It creates regulation in the mind, you know? And, and with that, we're able to you know, remain inwardly, we kind of maintain an equilibrium in spite of so many external, you know, difficulties that we're going to face mm-hmm. you know it, it can help and, and and with that we're able to solve many problems you know there are very very many problems that we could solve if we were in the right frame of mind to actually solve them so i think if we can get our minds in a sort of very balanced state then we ourselves will be able to help our own lives you know so this helps us to help ourselves in that sense yeah yeah. How did you come to find this practice or this heartfulness way? Which, what's your um, well? What story did I do? <laughs> I always feel like I stumbled into it. Yeah. I mean, I kind of did, you know. There was some search involved, but that search never led me to heartfulness. And yeah. uh, you know, I I was interested in meditation. I was interested in a lot of things, not just meditation, but sort of broader concept of spirituality and 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 because of that interest which became intense at times i went down a number of different paths but when i actually you know encountered this heartfulness practice it wasn't for searching for it but just because i was walking down the street one day and got in a conversation with someone standing outside a store and after a few minutes of talking it turned out that this person meditated and i so what is it that you do? And they had just started this and were really happy with it. So, mm-hmm. you know, they told me, go see this person who's te- who taught me how to do it. So I went and I met that person, this trainer. And he, you know, he was able to help me to meditate in such a way that I had really fantastic results almost immediately from it. I'd meditated before, but I hadn't had results so much because, mm-hmm. you know, like I often... You know, remember, as a, being a child, I'm a violinist, right? So from the age of five, I started playing. Violin isn't like the piano. Piano, immediately, if the piano's in tune, it'll be in tune. If the piano's decent piano, it'll be a decent sound. But the violin isn't like that. You'll play, it'll be out of tune. It'll be scratchy. It'll be, you won't have, there'll be no decent sound coming out of the instrument for a long time. Mm. And even afterwards, always, it's a very temperamental instrument, right? So these, so these necessity to have discipline, to have willpower, to have patience is there if you want to improve. And so I under, understood that already. And so when I approached meditation, it was a very, very similar attitude. Yes, I'll have to be disciplined. I'll have to have willpower. I'll have to have patience. So I never really expected results in an immediate way. Mm-hmm. Which is, but I became surprised because, you know, this new method that I had just tried was actually giving results in an immediate way. 
which seemed unconnected to the amount that I was investing in it. You know, the return was greater than the investment. So I thought, what is this? Yeah. Let me keep going with this. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? what, what were some of the, uh, the benefits that you saw in your day-to-day experience after you started uh, hmm. the meditation practice? Well, first, I think everything starts with an inner state. First benefit will always be an inner state. You know, in place of a lot of restlessness, there was a lot of peace. You know, in place of a lot of angst, there was a lot of lightness. You know, things like that started to happen first. But then when you have those inner states, your whole thought process and attitude change. And as a result of that, you start seeing the world in a sort of different way. So then the thing starts to sort of expand into your, you know, your your activities, the way you are in the world, you know. Like you can look at a sunset. You know, say you've just fallen in love with somebody. Now you're with them, you watch the sunset. And it seems like it was created for you, as everything's perfect. But then if that person breaks up with you, right, they dump you and you see the same sunset, <laughs> who knows, <laughs> you'll just say, you'll hate it. <laughs> it's the same experience, but, it's, uh, but now your consciousness is different. So if you change your consciousness, then everything changes because everything that we experience is within that realm of consciousness. So we create a light consciousness instead of one that's weighed down by the effects of so many reactions, emotional reactions to our experiences. You know, we just create a lot of purity in the consciousness and lightness in the consciousness. And the whole world, it, it isn't that you create an altered state. It's not an altered state. It's a purified state. So actually things are perceived more as they are instead of, you know, through so many filters that we have set up. Mm-hmm. You know, so what changed in my life, everything, because I was, I was, I was the one who was changing at that point. You know, yeah. that's all it takes. You let change yourself and all of a sudden you change your life. Yeah. You know? And and I know in your book, this is one of the other things that really stood out to me when um, Daji said that experiences reflect your inner nature. Exactly. Sounds just like what you, the, the result that you had. Exactly. That is always the fact. And, and in the book, uh, what he says is that, you know, he relates it very much to this concept of the ego. Because he says, you know, let's say, you know, you become mean and nasty, then your experience is always going to be bad, you know, yeah. whereas if you're generous and loving, your experience is going to be better, right? And then you eventually realize that your experiences are, that all of these things are tied to your ego. So the more you're trying to secure this sense of your ego and everything, the, the worse your experience is going to be. But the less of you there is, the less of me there is, rather, mm-hmm. then the more blissful it is. And then you realize that if I just zero myself out completely, then it would be absolute bliss. You know? So that's, yeah. that's, that's the context that he used. But also we have to, like I said, this consciousness, everything that we experience is within this realm of consciousness whether it's thoughts, feelings, sensations. Our experience of the external world is also Mm -hmm. something that we experience within this field of consciousness. So what determines the state of our consciousness? You know, there are a few factors. You know, we can, in yoga, in, in yoga, and I don't mean just, you know, yoga classes, you know, and yoga mats and yoga pants and things like that and stretching the body. I mean yoga in the sort of contemplative tradition of yoga, right? Mm -hmm. Of which meditation is the crucial part. They have an idea of a human being which consists of, you know, three main aspects. 
You have the physical body. You have what you can call the soul. Sometimes they refer to it as the self. You know. So you have those two. You have the physical body and the soul. Now, the nature of both of them seem to be very different from one another, right? Because in the physical body, there's this... It's part of the physical universe where there's just a lot of change all the time, a lot of instability, a lot of movement, time-bound, everything like that. Whereas the soul, its quality is not activity like the body, but instead its quality is stillness. Its quality is... Because of that, we have we can experience peacefulness, and the stillness, this balance. So you have the soul with this balance and stillness, the body with its activity. And in between the soul and the body, there's this interface, which is this field of consciousness. Now, the field of consciousness, depending on what your orientation is, will reflect. In other words, if your whole orientation is towards this physical outer world, then your consciousness is going to reflect that and it will have all the complexity of the outer world and all the instability of the outer world. Whereas, if it is oriented inwardly towards that essential part of yourself, the soul, then it will also reflect, it will also have the quality of this peacefulness, of this stillness, of this silence, of this balance. So the quality of our consciousness depends to the extent to which we're only externally oriented or inwardly oriented, mm -hmm. right? So with this heartfulness, we meditate, we center ourselves, we focus on that innermost part of ourselves, and our consciousness starts to reflect that. Meanwhile, we're able to cleanse the consciousness Right? of so many effects of this external you know, life that we lead, you know, which leaves all these complex effects, these imprints or impressions on the consciousness. So we clean it of that, where, where, when, and drawing the effects of the inner world, of the inner self, and then the, the whole thing gets converted into something which is so light and wonderful, you know? Yeah. Can you talk about the practice itself or the meditation itself mm. as far as some of the logistics, um, how many times a day, for how long? Sure. So this is uh, three practices, basically. One is meditation. Meditation is something, the best thing to do is to meditate at the same time, same place, every day. You create a sort of regular approach to this. You have... Uh, you make a sort of make it part of your body clock. If you meditate at five a.m. one day and nine p.m. the next day, and you just have it be so random, at that time when you're trying to meditate, you'll probably be accustomed to doing some other activity, mm. and it'll be more difficult for you to meditate at that time. Whereas if you make a habit of it at the same time, in the same place every day, then automatically at that time you'll start meditating and take care of 99% of the problems that meditators usually experience and the difficulties. It's just the only thing you ever do at that time, so it becomes natural to do it then. So how long should we meditate? Well, it depends on us. We should meditate until we feel that it's over, right? Anyway, we won't meditate for more than one hour. See? So one hour can seem like a long time to somebody who hasn't meditated. But sometimes you just start meditation and you completely lose track of time. And all of a sudden you say, well, let me come out. You kind of come out of that state and you look at the clock and an hour has passed. So let us, you know, meditate without an idea of time. You know, let's forget about that. We, we should find a time to meditate when we won't have so many pressing matters that will be stressing us out and preventing us from meditating. Like, oh, I better hurry up and finish this off so I can get to the office. 
you know mm-hmm. so or or i had their children that are going to disturb me now i hope they don't come knocking at the door like okay meditate before they're awake you know what i mean yeah so we should find some sort of place and time like that we have another practice called cleaning where we're able to actually what i just mentioned actually because i said we're able to clean, cleanse the consciousness in a way mm-hmm. and we're basically removing this emotional burdens that we have to, accumulated over the course of our lives over the course of our day so because of that we tend to do that towards the end of the day you know we just clear the effects of that day whatever it's been and and as a result we find some freshness in ourselves you know lightness in ourselves so that's something like a few minutes 15 20 minutes maybe even 30 no more than that mm-hmm. and we do that towards the end of the day you know best time to do it is after you come back home or you have before dinner even you know because it's also a fact i think it's in the book somewhere that you know if you eat with this sort of lightness of your attitude the digestion will be better and that's tied back to these experiments that pavlov did mm-hmm. you know when they introduced fear into the animal and then you know measured their secretions and the gastric secretions they found that they completely dried up because that fear was prevented so digestion won't be you know as efficient if there are these heavy emotions or fearful yeah. emotions so if we can remove bring ourselves to emotionally balanced state in that time in between when we come home and before we have dinner it'll be the best and then right before we go to sleep there's a sort of prayerful meditation i would say that we do for just a few minutes just to sort of help us go to sleep in the right spirit and the right attitude the right sort of state of consciousness which will then convert those otherwise wasted hours of sleep into something which is spiritually helpful and which actually prepare us for morning meditation so the whole thing becomes sort of a continuum of you know ever increasing intensity in a sense where where you know all throughout the night you're becoming prepared for the meditation which then carries you creates a meditative state in yourself and that meditative state doesn't end when meditation ends but actually carries you through the entire day right helps you to be, remain very very you know peaceful and with stillness in within yourself throughout the entire day and then of course whatever you know however you have failed in this day and mm-hmm. sort of which has left its traces upon me i'm able to remove that to purify that myself from those effects then at night i'm again we starting again so the whole thing now i can sort of progress and become lighter and lighter and lighter every single day wow you know that's wow. the idea that's and that's what awesome. happens that's awesome um how did you meet uh kamlesh patel well you know i started this meditation in 2002. Mm-hmm. When did I meet him? I think I met him in 2005. At that time he was not my guide. You see, at that time this this practice when did it come about? I mean, I I'd say this lineage of teachers goes back to the early 20th century. And you know, in this lineage the third teacher or guide in this lineage. It was still in his time when I started meditation. That was 2002. Mm-hmm. And so when I first I think I went to I traveled somewhere in 2005 and Kamlesh Patel was also traveling. He was also a student of this meditation just as I was, albeit with much more experience. He had almost, mm-hmm. you know, 3 decades under his belt at that time of practice. But the guide was somebody else. 
But later, before that guide uh, passed away, he made Kamlesh Patel his successor in this lineage. Mm-hmm. You okay? So then later on, you know, that was in 2000, end of 2014, and that's when he became the fourth guide in this okay. heartfulness lineage. And I got to know him a little bit, I got to know him a little bit in, I think, more in 2008, 9, 10, because we were actually both living in the same apartment complex oh, really? in Chennai, in South India. Just as a random type? Sort of random, not exactly random, but, mm-hmm. um, you know... I was there working, and he was there for other reasons. And so I got to know him there mostly through family because I was friends with one of his family members, mm-hmm. you know, and so like that. Yeah. And then after he became appointed, you know, as the successor in this lineage, and maybe a year later, he called me up and asked me to write a book about meditation too. Mm-hmm. And I said yes. And then I became insecure about the whole thing. <laughs> Had I, you ever written a book? No, before? I never written a book. And <laughs> I also thought that with his, you know, expertise, it would be more appropriate for him to write a book than mm-hmm. for me to write a book. And when I approached him with this, you know, concern, he just sort of laughed it off and said, okay, fine, we'll do it together. Mm-hmm. And so then the book ended up being a co-a partnership. I see that. Yeah. It seems like it's been very well received around the world too are you surprised by that i don't know i never really expected it was going to do well or do badly so i I don't know if i no, i don't think surprised but Mm -hmm. but happy for sure sure you know um so it's good if people find out about it and because otherwise they'll have to be like me and rely on some chance meeting on the side of the road right like how i i'd like it to be easier for I don't want circumstances to have to magically arrange themselves so other people can have such an experience. Yeah. You know, life changing occurrence like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, in the book, you have a, uh, what I feel was a really fantastic diagram, and you talk about focused and unfocused mm-hmm. and effort and effortless, and that really resonates with me. Okay. Can you, can you unpack that diagram a little okay. bit? Okay. So, unfortunately, I don't think the listeners will have it. Well, you uh, they can I buy can the, share it with them. I'll oh, put a picture of it if that's if that's okay. Yeah, or you can encourage them to just buy the book. I would definitely <laughs> do that. In, in, in addition, yes. So you know, because there's more information there yeah, in the no, book. Yeah, that's a big. So that's a a lot of the time people associate meditation with concentration. But in concentration, when you're using so much effort, will you ever experience the effects of this sort of relaxation or the effects of peace? And it'll also be artificial. Let's say you're, you're able to hold your mind in one place. As people think, it's a state of focus, right? So let's say you're able to apply your efforts and hold the mind in one place. Have you succeeded in meditation? Because what happens if you let go? And will it remain in that one place? It's like when you're balancing some object. You know, you, very, you take a pen and you try to balance it on one end. You know, the moment you let go, if it's not in balance, it'll just fall down again. Right? So similarly with the mind, maybe with concentration you can hold it in place, but that's not true stillness. It's artificial based on your forceful approach. So it has to be done. Real balance means that there's no effort applied. It just stays there because it's its nature to stay there. Because no other force is acting on it or pulling it in a different direction. Okay. You know? So by we have to take an effortless approach from the very start. 
But then how does it happen? So that's another question then. Um, you know, normally if we try to focus our minds and we're met with a lack of success, we end up feeling very frustrated. So, and then if we do succeed, then we call that concentration. Now on the effortless side, if we're not trying to, you know, focus our minds at all, and we're okay with the fact that it remains unfocused, and that's some sort of daydream-like state. You know, it's just moving and moving, and we're fine with that. But then what the actual meditative state is, is a state where the mind is in a state of focus. But in a natural way, it's, it's reached that state. It's not because you've tried to make that happen. So then how does it actually happen? The mind actually has to be, it sort of, it has to settle. It has to almost be attracted towards an object. You know, we find that when we meditate, when people meditate with heartfulness meditation, because of some certain features that exist in this method, people are able to actually experience something on an inner level. And that experience can attract your attention to the extent that your mind becomes very absorbed in that experience. And due to that, it, it's, now, its movement is now getting under control okay. by itself. You know? Some effort, some subtle effort will always be necessary. You can't have a completely effortless approach. Meaning that, let's say you want to take a train, right? Once you get on the train, you don't have to do anything at all. You just sit there and it takes you somewhere. But you do have to step on the train. Mm -hmm. So here I would say, there's a certain minimal effort that you have to make. You sit, you close your eyes. To a certain extent, you put your attention on the object of meditation that's prescribed once it's there, then all of a sudden you'll start noticing some inner experiences which will be absorbing to you. And then you won't have to try to, let me try to keep my mind on this one idea or this one feeling. You won't have to try that. Automatically, it'll take you away. You'll, that train will leave the station. But there is that moment where you do have to board the train, and that is a, some slight effort. Sure. You know? Or then it takes over and you exactly it facilitates a little bit exactly it guides you there and then actually it's something we call yogic transmission oh gotcha okay. is uh, very I don't know if we want to get into all of this but it could be a whole <laughs> it'll be another show you know yeah <laughs> um, so um, how does the heartfulness way and or does it integrate with other practices, either yoga or meditation styles or practices um, that people may be already doing? Well, integrate, I don't know maybe exactly or, what you or mean. can they do, like say someone that already has a meditation practice they do, like yeah. breath or other styles of meditation, can they also do heartfulness? Is there a more exclusive? So, um, yeah, I understand. So I think people, you know, should come to their own conclusion in the sense that you can do whatever you're doing. You're a Catholic or a Sufi or whatever you may be, whatever you may practice. Or if, or if beyond religion, you're doing something else like an actual practice, you know, you, you already know what that's about. Now, if you try heartfulness and then see what kind of effect that has, you can, I think, conclude for yourself what the differences are, what your needs are. You know, I sometimes think that no matter what we do, we should never be too orthodox that we are 
unwilling to make a change in our lives. I think that openness should be there. But at the same time, there's no insistence from my side, from our side, that this is the only path and you should do this instead of what you're going to do already. I think some people do make a change. They try this and they do leave what they were doing before and do this instead. But then it's their choice to do so. Mm-hmm. You know, if, they've, if they're weighing the benefits, you know, of what they're doing and what this is providing, then let them form that conclusion on their own, you know. Yeah. And if they don't conclude that, then that's also fine, mm-hmm. you know. But I think that we're not going to insist that they stop doing that other thing, right. which means that they may well continue doing that as well as they do this at the same time, mm-hmm. you know. So sometimes it takes people a while to gain some clarity. You could also be systematic about it. See, the problem with that approach, while it's everybody's choice to do what they like fundamentally, but at the same time, if you want to truly understand what practice is causing which effect, then you'll certainly have to create some controls. Yeah, That's the thing. You'll have to understand what's doing what. So that means that you could take a very systematic approach. You could say, let me practice only this for one week and see what it does on its own. Or let me practice only that. You could take eight different practices. Forget mm-hmm. just heartfulness. You try eight different things. Practice each one for a week as well as you can and with guidance from experts in that method if possible, if they're available. And see what the effects are of each of these different methods. And then make an informed choice, you know? Now you've understood it, so now you can absolutely have the right to say yes to one and no to all other seven. Yeah. Well, and I I like that in the book, and I think I've seen other uh, interviews with you where you talk about um, when you experience something, then you know. And so it sounds like that's kind of the the offering is, hey, experience, try it, see what works, see what doesn't. Exactly. Choose what you want. Yeah, it should be based on that. Yeah. You know? When I first heard about heartfulness, I'm not sure it was explained to me in such a way that I would have chosen it based on what I understood it to be. Oh, really? But based on my experience of it, that's the only thing that actually got me. Well, and I guess, you know, another person shares their experience, you you know, it's interpreted through them. And so it it can not resonate with another person in the same way. So you're right. I like that, the fact that you... Because it really all comes down to that. We have to try it and get that firsthand experience to truly know. Absolutely. Uh, I love that. How can people find, uh, uh, get more information on the practice and or learn the practice? Sure. There's information. The best way to get information is to receive this from a trainer. Training is always free. There's no cost to this method. Trainers are professionals in other fields. You know, doesn't whatever their job may be, that's how they're making their money. Our belief is that you can't sell spirituality. It's mm-hmm. not possible to sell it. And it's not possible to buy it either. So this is something when people give training, it's because it's out of the, you know, their heart is wanting them to do it, you know? So if they make money, they have to make money some other way, not through this. So therefore it's free. And the best way to receive it is by sitting with a trainer. There are maybe 10,000, more than 10,000 trainers in the world across 130 countries. Chances are there's one near you. You can find uh, such a person 
if you go to the website heartfulness.org. There's a sort of Google Maps type function there. I think it's called uh, Heart Spots, okay. where you can sort of type in your location and see who's around you. And then you make touch, you know, you get in touch with that person, make contact, and, and you can have a couple sessions with them and, and see. Because there's something here which is very vital. I mentioned earlier, you know, that it'll change your experience of this method if you're, able, if you're uh, meditating along with a trainer or not. I can imagine. Okay. And <clears throat> there's other ways too. There's a, something, an app we call HeartZap. Okay? Okay. This HeartZap enables you to sort of virtually uh, contact a trainer where they remain in their location, you remain in your location, but still the thing gets done. Right? And of course, as far as information is concerned, there's this book that I co-authored. The Heartfulness Way, which very, I think, in a detailed way addresses many aspects of the practice. It's sort of a general book on heartfulness meditation. And of course, there are things, there's a heartfulness YouTube channel, you know, and, and things like that. So there it is. It's Hearts App. That's an app that you, that's on Apple. It's on your know, Android. There's heartfulness.org, right? There's information there. You can connect with a trainer there. There's the Heartfulness Way book, right? And there's some other information you can find here or there. Yeah. yeah. Lots of resources. Many resources. And they're free. That, that's what I found most asto- astonishing. Um, for something of this quality, and it seems like this benefit, that's awesome. Well, I mean, the Heartfulness Way book isn't free because there's a publisher there. Right. You know, but everything else. Training is always free. Meditation is always free. And there's a quote from the book. It says, uh, God is not for sale. And imagine if God were for sale and you had the wealth to be able to purchase God. But if that was the case, then why would you even need God? Yeah, good point. So what to do? Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Well, Joshua, I really do appreciate you making time to chat with me on the podcast. It's been really nice. I'm very happy to have been be, you know, be here with you. And I'm really grateful for your interest in this subject and your willingness to share it with all of your listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Me too. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, what'd you think? Pretty great stuff, right? So let's do a little recap on some of the resources mentioned in this episode. As Joshua mentioned, you can learn more about The Heartfulness Way at heartfulness.org. You can also purchase the book in either Kindle format or paperback on Amazon.com. Again, it is called The Heartfulness Way, Heart-Based Meditations for Spiritual Transformation by Kamlesh D. Patel and Joshua Pollock. And I'll have a link to that on my website as well. You know, I'd love to get your feedback on this practice. If you practice the heartfulness way, if you're thinking about practicing what you thought of the the interview here, the best place to do that is on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash gmarkphillips. You can leave a comment uh, beneath this episode when it goes up on the channel there, which will be very shortly. And I'd love to get your feedback on the heartfulness way, what you think of this practice if you're a practitioner, some of the benefits that you have realized in your own practice, and again, translating them into your day-to-day experience. I think it's really beneficial to share that with other people and learn from each other, right? 
understand how this practice can affect your experience in a day-to-day way. So do that at youtube.com slash gmarkphillips. If you found something beneficial in this episode, please share it with someone who you might think would need to hear this. And also, if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, that would be super awesome. You can find links to iTunes and this podcast on my website. I would really appreciate it. And at that point, we will wrap up this episode. Before we do, I just want to give a big shout out and a big thank you to Mark Stinson for making this interview possible. Thank you, Mark. I thoroughly enjoyed the whole day spending time with you and Joshua and Ashu and attending the lecture, interview, all of it. So really thankful for you setting this up. I really do appreciate that. And until next time, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Enhancing the Human Experience. All the best, health, wealth, and success. Bye-bye.